0: Welcome to Doctor Imposter. I'm your co-host Austin White, and I'm Ahu Mathias. We have a very special episode for you all this week. We have the one and only Dr. Leslie Zorwick here with us, and we're going to be between the three of us solving all of our country's uh, societal woes and racial disparities.
1: Yep, in our in our little 45-ish minute podcast, everything will be solved. Right, yep, you're Dr. Zorwick
0: history right here. It's
2: a great call.
1: But Dr. Zorwick, <laughs> welcome to uh, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Dr. Imposter. We're happy you're here.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Yeah, we're excited too. Austin and I are not experts in really any field yet. <laughs> um, so we wanted to have someone who is an expert come on the show um, and talk about some of the the problems that our society has been dealing with and that especially that have come up in in the past year or so that have really been at the forefront of news outlets and our social media platforms. Um, but before we get started, I think it we have to introduce you. We got to give you your due credit. Um, so Dr. Zorwick, hailing from Atlanta, Georgia, um, you have a bachelor's degree in psychology and philosophy from Emory University um, and an MA and a PhD in psychology from the Ohio state university. I got in the, the Ohio state university. That's right. Very important. They're so
2: hardcore about it. One of our first meetings was like, you got to put the V when you present at conferences, we're not screwing around here.
1: Yep. Yep. Um, and then you joined uh, faculty at Hendricks, correct? Hendricks university yep. in 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have some really impressive, you, you have uh, awards in teaching at both the Ohio state university and <laughs> Hendricks college. Um, and you are currently professor of psychology where you, uh, where you've been there for two years uh, or sorry, you've been there in the chair at this, of the psychology department for, uh, Mm -hmm. for the past two years. And you've chaired the campus committee on diversity and dialogue for three years served on the campus advisory board for education and the prevention of sexual assault. Um, you've served as an elected faculty representative four times. Um, you've taught courses about social psychology, um, Focusing on stereotyping, prejudice reduction, identity, belonging. You've gone beyond the classroom in your research with students on prejudice reduction strategies um, and how to develop empathy and and perspective taking. Um, your work in religious studies that uses Bible study as a way to facilitate conversations about racial justice. Um, and t- your work developing inclusive academic communities related to a uh, a national science foundation stem scholars grant that supports students from historically underrepresented groups so uh, and i think this la- this last bit is really cool uh, that mm-hmm. kind of shows your level of expertise uh, you've served as an expert witness in two federal discrimination trials speaking about the benefits of diverse and inclusive educational settings and maybe we can wow. get just a little bit of An anecdote from that experience, because that uh, is really cool, because that means you are recognized by the federal government as an expert in this topic.
0: And in the meantime, Kama can take a breath because that was a doozy. (laughs) Yes, it was.
2: (laughs) I feel like for the at least two years after I testified the first time, I would just periodically chuckle when I'd be like, (laughs) court said I'm an expert. That's hilarious. Like, because I'm very painfully aware that as much as I know about. Uh, prejudice and prejudice reduction, like I still don't know how to change a light fixture. <laughs> I can't do many, <laughs> many things that lots of other folks can do. So um, in 2009, I got to testify for the first time about a rezoning plan in the Nashville School District that functionally resegregated the schools because of housing um, segregation. And so they were going to have students all go to their neighborhood school, but because of residential segregation, that was going to decrease our the schools. So I got to talk about how good contact is with people who are different than you. How that benefits everybody. Um, and I actually got to say, which was pretty cool, my graduate advisor was declared. Uh, to, to she retired. And our advisors either have to be a big deal or have specific ties to a job, but she wanted to retire there. And so she got declared a national treasure by Australia. Wow. <laughs> So like I, that made more sense to me that I got to talk about the person I learned from being a legit national treasure. That I was like, great. Oh, I've only been a professor a couple of years, but okay. I know some stuff. <laughs> I realized um, nice. that was an
0: actual <clears> designation throat> throat> one could earn was to be a national treasure. Yeah, Seriously.
2: I know. I had no idea it was a thing. She actually came into a lab meeting my last year in grad school giggling. And she was like, "Guess what? Because <laughs> It probably great. took a while to get that in the works. <laughs> Listen, that's right.
1: <laughs> uh, so, so Dr. Zork, I do have a question that I wanted to, to ask just right off the bat. Um, what kind of got you into this track of psychology, social psychology, kind of, and, and your research in the topic of diversity and inclusion? Yeah. What, what started that?
2: That's a good question. So I tell my students that I became a social psychologist at 13. I just didn't know that's what it was called. Um, And so my parents were both debate coaches. And so when I was in the eighth grade, I was like, I would like to go to a debate tournament and see what y'all are doing on the weekends. I had no intention of pursuing this. I was just like, I don't know what this is even about. So me and my partner went, and she was also another young woman, eighth grader. um, And we had a debate against two young men from a private school in Atlanta. And it got heated, as eighth graders do sometimes. And at the end of the debate, uh, the judge waited until after the young men had left. And she said, hey everybody in today's debate was a little bit more aggressive than what we would like, but you can't get away with it as girls. What? And I remember being completely gobsmacked. Not that someone said this to me. Cause I'm like, you're not supposed to say that. Like I, I was woken up at 13 to know that wasn't cool. Um, but I was so surprised that the judge was a woman. I was like, what is your deal? Like this stereotype hurts you. Why are you putting it on us? And so uh, six years later, when I was 19, sitting in my first social psychology class, and we talked about how you could use science to study prejudice. I was like, yeah, I'm in. Because the idea of understanding people who stereotype and demonstrate prejudice against groups they belong to, right? Sexist women, racist minorities, what's happening there? And the idea that I could use science to understand that was so exciting to me. Um, and so that's what I started doing by thinking about how do people think about folks they have some stuff in common with but not. So a lot of my graduate school research was about how do business women feel about homemakers and how do homemakers feel about business women. <laughs> they do not care for each other. <laughs> and it's actually much stronger stereotyping than you see across men and women because part of what those women are doing is carving out their niche of what womanhood looks like. And so what I have noticed in the past 10 years is my focus has shifted a lot more to, how do we make it better? Because <laughs> that piece feels really important and we have a bunch of imperfect solutions, but giving my students the tools to go out into the world and advocate for the kinds of policies that can reduce this stuff so that we can all be interacting more effectively, making better decisions, that, that kind of feels like where my heart is. So I'm looking for any place and any collaborator on my campus who will let me do that work with them just how I'm working with someone in religious studies and working with folks in biology. And just because anyone who wants to try to create those kind of environments, that's really exciting to me.
0: That's awesome. I mean, that sounds exciting. Just the, the different rabbit holes. I'm sure that takes you down. It, oh, yeah. it would be fascinating. So a lot of, um, well, how we came to, uh, contact you is because our school did a, a summit on diversity and inclusion and And a big part of that was discussing diversity and different outcomes between different uh, groups of people as defined by race or income inequality, whatever. Um, So what do you think happens in healthcare when there's a lack of diversity?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think that in pretty much any field, a lack of diversity means that there are important things that go unassessed and unconsidered and we're not making as good of decisions as we could. And the reason for that, it isn't because people are jerks who wanna be mean to people who are different. It happens because we all have blind spots. So for example, if I was personally in charge of making healthcare policy at a local hospital, as much as I know about stereotyping and prejudice, I have always had health insurance. And so I am not as likely to be aware of some of the challenges that that poses for folks in seeking out healthcare than somebody who has had that experience, right? Um, if I am uh, a female doctor, and I'm really aware of the importance of um, preventative care through an OBGYN, I am not going to be as aware of what my husband needs to do for his preventative care, right, as he gets older. And so it's not that we're trying to be mean, it's that we all have blind spots. And those blind spots mean that if there isn't diversity, if hypothetically, but in reality, healthcare is predominantly white and predominantly male. That just means there are some blind spots that other folks might be able to point out to us from their unique position of a different experience. Even the experience of like women who go to to an OBGYN for care, like the needs of gay communities are really different than the needs of straight communities in some situations, right? The needs of trans patients are different than the needs of cis patients, and so I think that healthcare, like education, like policy, like, like just about anything, it just we could make better decisions if we had more diversity, because it benefits us all to be able to fill in some of each other's blind spots.
0: So what I take from that is these blind spots are probably, in your estimation, the biggest reason we have discrimination or, or lack of diversity, disparity in outcomes in healthcare, not so much overt racism and discrimination.
2: I'm, I mean, that's, that's sort of where my field is leaning in the past 10 years. I mean, for the. 50s through the 80s, there was just like straight up nasty hate speech and discrimination and I'm not going to work with you because you belong to X group. And and I don't want to say that never happens now because I know it does, but I don't think that's the majority of the way that racism, sexism, you know, any facet of prejudice plays out now because there are laws where you can get in trouble for saying stuff like that. And so I think that prejudice plays out in ways that are more subtle, like treating people with more or less respect because of an identity category they share, which means we might be likely to misdiagnose patients or not fully get the picture of what's going on. And I think that we don't know, we don't know. So my my husband talks sometimes about, um, my husband's a first generation college student. And he talks about when he got to college, when he had like problems where he had to go talk to the registrar, (laughs) like do paperwork nonsense. He was like, should I not be in college? Like, am I not smart enough to be here? Why is this so hard and overwhelming? Meanwhile, uh, not just my parents went to college, but all four of my grandparents went to college, which is wild because that was not the norm back then. And so when I had a problem with the registrar, I called my mom and I'm like, mom, what do I do? And she's like, let me call my friend Patty in the registrar's office. And it was easy. And nothing about that made me think, hey, maybe I don't belong here. But there are these things that mean something different to us if we're familiar than if we're not. And so one of the things that's been kind of cool is, as you see more diversity in more fields. Then we're more able to learn about things that might not be a primary consideration of group A once we invite group B into the conversation.
1: Hmm. That is very interesting. That is where I just wanted to mention real quick that like that collaboration, I think, is key, I think, and, and especially in healthcare. uh us as students, I think for the past decade or maybe two decades, healthcare has really started to go more towards a collaborative effort. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's less um, <clears throat> just the physician treating a patient. You know, in rounds you always talk about the healthcare team. It's a team effort, mm-hmm. and I think what you you're mentioning about diversity is it brings uh, a, an extra collaborative piece to patient care, if we're specifically talking about healthcare, um, that if, if you do lack that diversity, there is a huge blind spot that you ultimately could be hurting a patient further by having that lack of diversity.
2: Right. And I think that that makes so much sense to use that example in the context of healthcare, right? Like you recognize not everybody's a specialist in everything. Mm-hmm. Like somebody might know a ton about Oncology specifically related to one part of the body, but that doesn't mean that they know about all the other things that might be relevant for the patient or, uh, patient's treatment.. Right. And I think that the same is true in academics, and honestly, we're probably worse about this than y'all are in medicine because we're like, yep, psychology invented all the things and we have our own names for things. but we don't talk to anybody else. <laughs> like it's amazing how much research is out there that is useful for the questions we want to ask. I'm just not trained to look to all these other places. And I think as academic spaces become more interdisciplinary and we start recognizing that we have a lot to learn from each other, that same mindset can be really helpful in thinking about how do we put together teams of people that have not just different expertise to bring in, but also different experiences to bring in.
0: That brings up another interesting aspect of diversity. Like We need not just cultural and ethnic diversity, but intellectual diversity as well people with different uh, backgrounds in education and life experience, as well as everything else that we associate when we think of diversity. Mm
2: -hmm. We lose something potentially if we just think the goal is once I have someone who belongs to all these groups, then I'm always going to make great decisions, right? Because like no one woman can speak for all women. No one first generation student can speak for all first gen students. No one black person can speak for every black person's experience. But once we open ourselves up to people who have had different experiences and different perspectives, have something to teach us, and that becomes a mindset that we go into interactions with, then my God, do we have so much more that we can learn. And I think that sometimes we're really bad at that in the academy and in education because of imposter syndrome. Like, because if I think like I had to work so long to become an expert in my field, then why would I even pretend like I know anything about any other field? Because then people are just going to make me feel dumb. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like um, every once in a while, I will be teaching some topic that is peripherally related to something else. And the student will ask about the something else. And I'll be like, I don't know. And they kind of look at me like, is that a joke? like, listen, the PhD just means I know a lot about one thing. Um, In a statistics class early in my teaching career, a student goes, hey, you showed us two formulas for how we can solve this, but why are they the same? It doesn't look like they have all the same parts. And I'm like, because math, and I know it's more complicated than that, but for the purposes of this class, I just need you to trust me because of math. And a student who's a math major is like, it has to do with this property in calculus. And I'm like, yeah, what she said. I didn't know any of that. Because that's not what I'm here to do. And I see some students being like, "Mm." but I vividly remember the most, the most striking impression that I have the thing that I remember the most from the day I walked across the stage got my PhD was as I stepped onto that stage I was like, I'm so dumb, I don't know anything about almost everything. Like I know a ton about social psychology and discrimination and prejudice, but I don't know how to use the pump that blows up the air mattress in my apartment. <laughs> like, And so I think we have this sense sometimes that when people have expertise, it means they know about everything instead of that we're good at our one thing. And that's plenty to bring in and to offer to other folks.
1: Yeah. That, that's a really good point. And I think, um, for, you know, the most, the majority of our audience is, I should say our current medical students and um, hopeful medical students, future students. And obviously we're, we're net we're going to be experts in one field of medicine. And in terms of this um, in, in terms of this topic of uh, inequity in healthcare, racism and healthcare, and just in the, in our society in general, I think it's, it's uh, we'll never be to the point where you are necessarily where we have a PhD in social psychology um, mm-hmm. I'm sure there are physicians who do have PhDs and, or a master's in the, in similar topics, but most of mm-hmm. us won't. Um, but it would be really I- irresponsible for physicians to not at least be educated a little bit in the topic. Mm-hmm. And so we so where just, I guess we can get into some actions right early on in the episode, but where do you think us medical students can start to, uh, learn, can, um, can basically start tackling this issue as students? that's
2: That's a great question. So for me, I think that the reason that I know I chose the right field is because I am just endlessly curious about the diversity of people's experience and perception of things. And what that means is it doesn't matter what I'm reading or watching. I'm looking for that because I'm interested. Right. And so for me, that has meant finding a handful of periodicals and authors that I know I want to read what they're writing. And I know when they say I should read someone, I should probably check that out. And so I think sometimes it feels like there is this world of all the information, and I don't even know where to start. So I give up and I'm just going to rewatch that TV show again that I like, (laughs) which is fine, you know, but um, for me, like, I know that there were a handful of authors that I, every time they write something, I'm like, damn, that's what I needed to read. So one of those authors for me is a woman named Roxanne Gay. And she writes a lot about her experience as a black lesbian, well, black bisexual feminist. And just what she writes about things, she doesn't have to be writing about that experience of her identity. She can be writing about the insurgency at the Capitol. She can be writing about a new policy change that I don't think has anything to do with diversity. But her voice gets me to think differently than I tend to think by myself. Another author I look for a lot is a woman named Ijeoma Oluo. Um, she wrote this book, fantastic book called So You Want to Talk About Race a couple summers ago. That really breaks down how racism can play out in context where it is not as obvious as we might expect. And so then for me, it is starting with the places where they write stuff <laughs> or like once a month Googling them to see what they've done. Um, Another source I really like is the Atlantic because they do kind of long form pieces about social issues that try to connect to academic fields of study. So I feel like I've read more stuff about covid and medical racism and health disparities from the Atlantic than just about any other place. Because, like, I love Ed Young, who's writing a lot of these articles. Um, So I think that once you start opening yourself up to the idea that other people have a lot to teach me, then find people who speak to you. And that's a, I, do y'all do this sometimes when you read an academic article, you look at the footnotes or references and you're like, oh, I want to read that paper too. But mm-hmm. like I think the same thing happens in popular writing as well, where if someone whose voice I like references someone else, that's someone else I should check out. And I think making it a habit to be looking for that, just like you might make it a habit to look for new, new papers that are coming out about your particular field of specialty. I think that means you can also um, maybe keep up more because like things change. Right. Like the diversity needs of different communities change a lot. When I first started teaching back in 2003, uh, ooh, we called participants white and African-American and not calling black participants African-American was kind of like, that's wrong. Now, absolutely. The preferred nomenclature is black. And so things change a lot over time. But reading folks writing in a sort of contemporary way can help me at least feel like I know how people are talking about stuff, which makes it easier to get into those conversations. I feel like I like that. Is that helpful?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. You're, you bring up a point of, uh, <clears throat> I like how you mentioned that even if they're not talking about diversity or inclusion, they could be talking about any random subject, but just hearing it, hearing their voice talk about that, uh, it, it makes you a more empathetic person. Um, mm-hmm. I, I read a, a study once that was, uh, that someone else had told me about, about how reading a book, not like a, a nonfiction book, but a fiction book, a, a time, like a classic um, reading any book makes you a more empathetic person because as you're reading, you're putting yourself in their shoes. You're thinking you're, you're like, your brain automatically starts tr- forming a, a perspective mm-hmm. in their shoes and so yeah. I, what you're saying is just read and makes you a more empathetic yeah. person, which of course would make you, uh, uh it would help you recognize your own biases. It will help you tackle some of these issues.
2: I was so excited when that paper came out. Because like, so I'm a voracious reader. I, that's, that's what I do for fun. And usually I don't read stuff that is super thinky unless it's related to this, the stuff I'm interested in. But like, I don't read nonfiction for fun. It's too hard. (laughs) I read a lot of like young adult fantasy because I want to use my imagination and stuff. Um, but I think that that's absolutely true. That like anything you do that invites you to practice taking on perspectives that aren't yours is a good thing to practice. I mean, perspective taking is probably the, lowest effort strategy we have that we know is profoundly impactful in reducing stereotyping. Okay. So like a big marker of cognitive development in little kids is when they have theory of mind, they understand other people see things differently than they do. So if I ask my three and a half year old right now, what should we get daddy for his birthday? She'll be like, uh, a new ball to kick in the yard. Cause that's what she wants. You know what I mean? Like she she isn't like, he's different than me and he might want something different. But my seven-year-old can be like, well, I want this, but I think daddy will want this. And so that's a huge thing. Um, And we can all perspective take. Um, The thing that's really interesting is even though it's important, it helps us navigate the world in like a thousand ways. We all kind of suck at it sometimes (laughs) because we default into our own perspective because we know it the best, right? Like Mm -hmm. my husband and I know each other better than anyone on the planet. And at least once a month, both of us say at some point, but think about it from my perspective. And like, we're trying, we know so much, we're trying so hard. But like our default is to think about how we see it. So it takes making it a habit of practice to take on the perspectives of other folks.
0: And I think in the information age that we live in, it has never been easier to find different perspectives to experience. Mm -hmm. But I think, I mean, at least- for myself, we don't. We get really comfortable in our slot and in our, our rut that we're in. Mm-hmm. We know what we like to listen to. We know who we like to talk to. We know what we like to read or watch. Mm-hmm. And so it just becomes like this echo chamber reinforcing our habits and, yeah. and the perspectives we have. So, so how do we break free from
2: that? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so one of the things I think there's a lot about social media that sucks and is bad for us. It makes us feel bad about ourselves and all this stuff. It takes a lot of time. Um, but one thing I think social media can be great for is seeking out voices that you don't agree with or voices of folks who have different perspectives than you and using that as an opportunity to check in. So mostly I use Instagram to post pictures of my new puppy because she's adorable. Um, and then also I follow a bunch of people who do activism related to a bunch of different facets of identity. Right. So like I have some really fantastic voices who are writing about their experiences, navigating disability. That like That's not my experience. And so when they say, hey, this article was really impactful to me. Great. Um, But I also have a couple of people that I follow who are like, I don't necessarily agree with them, but I want to butt heads with their ideas so that I can push my own thinking a little bit further. So let me give you an example. There's this guy in social psychology whose work is amazing named Jonathan Haidt. And he's been studying happiness, what makes us happy, how we connect to other people for a long time. But he's also started studying political polarization and how that's gotten so much worse and why that happens, what's happening underneath it psychologically. And he wrote this article in The Atlantic, oh my God, maybe like five years ago now, um, and then wrote a book about it with his co-author a couple of years ago about uh, basically like What's the title of the book is The Coddling of the American Mind. And it's all about how, like, we need to be open to stuff that upsets us. We need to be open to perspectives we find yucky, like trigger and trauma warnings shouldn't be part of education because we need to give folks in a supportive scaffolded space the opportunity to learn about really yucky ideas. And I admire him as a researcher and I agree with a lot of what he says and I don't agree with some of it. But if I don't encounter that, it doesn't push my own thinking forward. Now, I'm not really interested in reading people who have no interest in thoughtfully trying to engage disagreement. Do you know what I'm saying? Like people who are just like, and anyone who agrees with me is dumb and an asshole. Like I don't, I'm not doing that. But like people where we can reasonably disagree about what the right thing to do is, but I see them trying to explain what they think in a way that invites other perspectives that really appeals to me, but it's hard. I would much rather in my very limited spare time read people who agree with me and it's not hard and it doesn't challenge me, (laughs) but I think it's important.
0: And that's really hard, especially now when it feels like discourse has gotten so much more vitriolic and people really have polarized themselves and so many people are debating in bad faith Yeah, It's hard to to engage without it feeling like Mm -hmm. a a dogfight, basically.
2: Yeah. I think another issue that comes up is I think that many people agree with the general goals of creating communities that are reasonably inclusive, but it tends to be the same handful of people in those spaces who are actively doing that work, actively encouraging those conversations. And part of the tricky thing, too, is how do you make it feel like it's everybody's issue When for some folks, it is harder for them to get started with the conversation because they haven't practiced and they go in feeling sort of defensive or like they're going to mess up. And then it's hard to actually really connect with other people. And I think that takes like intentionally creating spaces that are focused on learning, not focused on already agreeing with each other. I
0: like that. It, it, It seems like 2020, especially this past year, has kind of been the year for selfishness
2: yeah i agree and and here's what else i will say i also get why right now when a lot of us aren't seeing our friends like normal our life feels kind of weird things feel kind of existentially scary because of covid and because of political unrest i get also why people are like i'm not going to challenge myself i'm just going to watch this tv show for the sixth time like and the tricky thing is when the world is hard and overwhelming it's hard to have the bandwidth to do something harder than you have to do. I think that we need to do better selling diversity, not just as a moral value, but like getting people to really think about the benefits of diverse perspectives. Because I, I think a lot of times we go, diversity is important and people are like, yeah, okay, I get it. But we don't give people a reason to see it as their thing, even if it's not mm-hmm. already their thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. The people have, Absolutely. you gotta
1: take, you gotta take
0: ownership Mm-hmm. Of it or else it will. You'll never do anything. You'll never make a goal mm-hmm. if you don't own it. it it always seems like When when a person who leans towards the right side of the political spectrum, let's say here's the word diversity They kind of turn their nose up at it. Yeah, and they they think yeah, that's that's so liberal. That's mm-hmm. That's that's dumb How do we help people see that that diversity really benefits everybody? Because because people aren't usually motivated to action until they see how something will benefit them directly. That's just kind of.
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, um, so a hook in for me sometimes in talking to folks who are definitely not in the same place I am is to say, think about the best experiences you've had in work. Was it because there were people who disagreed with you and you pushed each other to make things better? And almost universally, folks have had that experience of working with someone who didn't quite see things how they did, but it made a better final product. There's a ton of research in psychology that finds that diverse groups are more creative and you can operationalize diversity in tons of different ways. Like students from different majors, students from different racial groups, students who have different experiences before coming to college. But if you have more perspectives at the table, you're a lot less likely to miss something obvious. So one of my favorite examples of this is like when advertising just epically fails because they did not include people from diverse groups. And, and I'm I'm constantly looking for these examples because I like to show them in my classes. So one of my favorites is um it. I think it was sold at Costco this past summer or two summers ago. It's this giant inflatable raft for a pool for someone to lay on. And it looks like a maxi pad. The color of it and the way it has lines on it, I mean, identical. And a bunch of people I know were sharing this like, wow, there were no women in the room (laughs) when they designed this. Because a woman would have gone, the colors are cool. I like the size. But... But... (laughs) like you we got to make a couple tweaks and we see this in a lot of advertising fails right that are just a constituency that was gonna see this was never consulted on how it would appeal um there's there's this campaign I think it's from 2014 that Nivea did so like I don't know in the early 2010s late uh, 2000s, there's this big push for like men to get as into skincare and, and personal hygiene as women have historically been, right? Because these companies are like, we can also make you feel bad about yourself, guys. Um, and so they had this campaign called Recivilize Yourself. So what they have is like this dude with long hair and a beard, and he's throwing away a mask with the long hair and the beard, and he's clean shaven and has short hair. Okay, uh, so that's a white guy. And they do the same campaign with a black guy who's throwing away a face that has natural hair, in a short Afro. And Black people are like, are you kidding me with this? Like, come on, you can't be doing stuff that says Black hair worn in this natural style is inherently uncivilized, right? And and Nivea was like, oh my God, our bad, we don't want to offend anybody because they want everyone to buy their products. But it says something about who was probably in the room when they were making Mm -hmm. the decision about what the ad was going to look like. And so I think that like there's this research companies do better. They address problems more effectively and it can be stuff as small as like designing something in a one-time meeting for 30 minutes to like actually working on big projects. So, like the groups do better work because there are more people to point out other people's blind spots.
1: And I think, I think you bring up like the, the fact that, uh, undiverse homogenous groups put out things, uh, like in terms of advertising, let's say, for example, put out advertisements that are, uh, misinformed or they just, like you said, they'd miss something because they lack that diversity. I think that's a, a big reason why misinformation about, yeah. uh, minority groups, uh, have persisted in healthcare and in our society mm-hmm. in general. I think that's a huge reason why, uh, there's a lot of, um, misconceptions about Mm -hmm. certain groups of people.
2: Yeah, I think you're totally right. I think too, that we don't, we don't always pay attention to the ways in which we are socialized. Uh, It's like, have y'all heard this old joke? I've seen this quoted in a bunch of places. So a fish swims up to another fish and says, Hey, how's the water today? And the first fish says, what's water? Um, And so like that's our socialization, right? It's around, we totally take it for granted, we don't think about it until we have a reason to try to pull back and think about it. And there are a lot of ways in which in America we are socialized to think about women and their expression of pain differently than men, that we are socialized to think about the experience of Black folks' pain differently than white folks' pain. And that isn't stuff that is new to the past 30 years. That's stuff that there's a history that goes back hundreds of years, that those ideas are getting subtly transmitted. And so the same ideology that folks use to justify chattel slavery and experimentation on Black bodies is the same thing that gets us to the place now of misconceptions about black folks and how they navigate pain and how they need medical care. And so it just, and nobody today thinks about any of that. They're just like, I just kind of have this impression. And partially that's because the ways in which they have read things that has leaked out in without them noticing that comes from the way it leaked out for those people 50 years before. Uh, And so I think that we're all kind of stuck with a lot of socialization unless we have people to push back on sort of the veracity of those things.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned specifically like Mm -hmm. in healthcare, how dangerous this really can be when these preconceived notions, for example, how black people uh, Mm -hmm. feel pain or muscle Mm -hmm. mass, things like that. When, when those preconceived notions Mm -hmm. become codified and they become part of, for example, formulas that, that we're taught to calculate GFRs and that is used uh, in how we treat kidney disease and that is used to determine whether or not somebody qualifies for something like a mm-hmm. kidney transplant. You can see this huge disparity opening up from something that just got yeah. baked in uh years ago that nobody has questioned since.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's a researcher who whose work I just love. Uh her name is Sophie Trawalter Walter and she does a lot of work about how physicians and medical providers react differently to pain presentation for black and white patients, and then how that affects ultimate outcomes. But it seems to happen because of beliefs aren't real differences connected genetically to some kind of predisposition to disease, right? So so something like uh, Tay-Sachs being a little bit more likely in certain Jewish populations, right, there is something genetically that's going on there. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times we just talk about disparities, and then people come up with their own theory for why that actually does mean Mm -hmm. there is this huge, meaningful genetic difference between uh, black and white folks. And I really like your point of talking about formulas. So there is some research that folks have been doing in social psychology and computer science, which like I, I love that these two disciplines are coming at this problem from slightly different perspectives about how we all kind of have this notion that machine algorithms are unbiased. Like that's the way we're going to solve all these problems. We're going to figure out the right algorithm. We're going to teach it to computer. And then we're going to remove all user error of the person making the decision. And it turns out that we absolutely program those kinds of biases into machine algorithms, yeah, I believe that. which tend to actually reinforce those biases over time. And they get worse, but we're like, but it's the machine. It's not biased.
0: Right. People that believe that haven't been on Facebook in the yeah. last
1: five years.
2: <laughs> yeah, right.
1: <laughs> yeah, their uh, their machines don't make themselves biased. Humans make machines, and uh, there there's uh, you met in the seminar that you did here at Rocky Vista last week. Um, you mentioned a lot of the like just how healthcare has um, contributed to a lot of. Uh, inequity in, in our society. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned one thing that it's, it's kind of funny about biological differences that we perceive to exist. Um, Like specifically, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that medical students believe that there are biological differences in how black and white people perceive pain. We Mm -hmm. we just talked about that, but you mentioned something that's funny. You said that um, it makes, makes as much sense to divide race by length of your big toe as it does to classify or divide people by their skin tone. Yeah. Like just because they have different skin tone. Yes, there are some, there are slight differences in biology and, and sometimes genetics, but it it makes as much sense to talk about your toe length as it does your skin tone.
2: Yeah. That blew my mind when I first came across that idea, because I can read and intellectually understand people saying there is more genetic variability within racial groups than there is across racial groups. It is not biologically meaningful. And that is so hard for me to reconcile with the fact that yeah. race is so socially meaningful, but that it is a totally arbitrary feature that we chose. We chose skin tone and hair texture. We're like, yep, that's the thing. But yep, we yeah. could have used things that are so much more arbitrary. And so yeah. that, that, it is hard to wrap my brain around that, which tells me something about how intensely I have been socialized to think race is something yeah. inherently biological. Same
1: when, when when you mentioned that, I like sat there and I was like, but then what? How do we class? I was like, well, then how do you divide people? How do you class? It, it like really got me. It really got yeah. me thinking. Like because my entire life that like that's what I've been told by. Uh, the, like the media around me, by mm-hmm. people around me, by society is like you classify people as their ethnicity. Every time you fill out a form, you mm-hmm. have to put down your race and ethnicity mm-hmm. every single time, yeah. like, even for things that it really doesn't matter. They want it like, we just, that's what we're ingrained to do with. And that's all we think about without thinking about other things, um, in, in our lives that are probably a lot more meaningful, like in terms of healthcare, uh, Obviously, yes, minority groups do suffer more from certain uh, health issues. I think this year with COVID has really brought that to the forefront. Like uh, I I wrote down in the notes here in Utah, the Native American population has been hit significantly harder by Mm -hmm. COVID. That doesn't necessarily mean that Native Americans have a higher susceptibility to COVID. It just means that maybe their access to healthcare is worse. Their living conditions are worse. Like there are other things beyond race that are far more important than just their race and race and ethnicity that yeah. we often, we, we look, glance right over.
2: Yeah. In social psychology, we tend to study the most race, gender, and age, not because they're the most interesting facets of identity, but because they are facets of identity that have some external visual cues. Now they're not perfect, right? Like, mm-hmm. like my daughter got really confused when my brother-in-law visited and he had really long hair and she's like, that's uncle Joe, but his, his hair is long? Is he a girl? Right? So kids are are this really interesting test case of like how bad the visual cues actually are for facets of identity. But we tend to focus on these things as though they are meaningful, immutable truths. And I think your example about different outcomes in COVID is a really good one, because it is a place where sometimes I see reporting going, you know, Native American communities are having higher rates, so are Black and Latinx communities and well, and just leaving it there, which kind of invites us to conclude, ah, racial groups are differentially susceptible, not to conclude, hey, when you live in a society where people are prejudiced against you, you navigate a chronic stress response is bad for your immune system. Not that you're probably gonna have different access to healthcare and quality of where you can live because of the history of redlining in America. Like it it doesn't invite us to consider the context that set groups up to have different experiences. We just go, ah, those groups must be different. And that's a a really easy thing for our brain to do, not because we wanna be mean, but because if I can figure out what a whole group of people is like, Mm -hmm. then I can predict a lot more. I can understand the world better, right? Like stereotypes, are inaccurate and they're gross over generalizations but they do make the world more predictable like like if i think i know what every older adult is like sweet i'm done like i don't have to like think very carefully anytime i meet an older adult i know exactly what they're like
1: and that's what our brains want to do our brains yeah. want to create shortcuts to make our lives more efficient
2: i mean here's the example i always give of this do y'all remember the first time you got behind the wheel of a car I do. Yes. I don't remember anything about the week surrounding it, but I remember feeling so overwhelmed. I was like, wait, I have to look at the speedometer and navigate these pedals and use the mirrors and not be distracted by the people in the car. Is this a joke? Like, there's no way I can do all these things. I remember it being so overwhelming. I could not even conceive. And I was like in a p- empty parking lot of going faster than five miles an hour, let alone being on a freeway. I was like, that will never happen. Meanwhile, probably well, back when I was still going into work, right? Not working from home. I would say four out of five days of the week, I would get home and have no memory of driving home. (laughs) Because things that are hard, our brain wants to make them easier for us, right? Over time it comes into this thing we don't have to think super carefully about. Mm -hmm. So we only expend a lot of careful energy when something feels important or it feels new. Like if, my God, if every situation you were in was like the first time you've ever been there, it would be so overwhelming. We'd never get anything done. So stereotypes make the world easier to navigate, but it comes with the downside of making a lot of mistakes.
0: Yeah. The, the thing that is, the, the thought that's flown into my mind as we've been discussing probably in this last five minutes is uh, if someone were to submit research to JAMA or the New England Journal of Medicine, trying to justify uh, racial differences using genetic data as a way of categorizing patients, their p-values would be ridiculous enough that that research would have been rejected out of hand by either of those publications, right? Mm -hmm. Yet we still have research being published using race as a way of categorizing patients.
2: Exactly. It
0: just shows how baked in that is to the way we think about things.
2: That's exactly right.
0: how much our work is cut out for us in trying to overcome that.
1: Yeah. And I think that, I think Austin, you bring up a good point because I think that puts a lot of the uh, a good responsibility on physicians and the us future physicians to engage in quality research questions, like making sure that we're not basing research off of just purely race, but looking at other factors that in people's lives to base research on so that we're not doing that so that we're not falling into that trap of just going for, Oh, what yeah. race, what race are they? And that's how we're going to base this research question. It really puts a lot of responsibility on us to yeah, be yeah. It's not just prejudice, writers. it's bad science.
2: Exactly. That's exactly right. There's yeah, this that, yeah. um, edited volume by this guy named, uh, Rodolfo Mendoza Denton, who does a lot of work about colorblindness and racism without racist. Like how does racism still pop up? Even when people are like, I'm not a racist, I'm trying really hard not to be racist. And so the whole book is about how this plays out in science. This is a really interesting chapter on statistics, right? So like when I teach statistics, I teach my students the difference between discrete variables and continuous variables, right? Your favorite color, okay, you're in one of those categories, but your score on a quiz, that's continuous. Okay, so we know that race exists in a continuum, right? If we're using any particular physical characteristic, be it skin tone, hair texture, We also know because of the number of people that are biracial or multiracial, like race is not a discrete category that is easily defined. And yet, the vast majority of research that studies racial groups using, like wanting to study questions of prejudice, treats race like a meaningfully distinct grouping. And there are a lot of ways that we make decisions about our methodology and our science that reinforce these differences as being super meaningful because we continue to define these variables and construct them in the way they're socially constructed that makes them meaningful. And, and so that idea that like what we think we're doing with objective science is actually reinforcing a lot of these. There's also some research that like, we tend to only talk about things as being about culture. If they're about race or where you're from in the world, we never talk about that with white people. We're never like, right, white people do this thing. So we have this history in social psychology, which I think is amazing, of the 1950s to the 1980s. We're like, here's how it is. Here's why people conform. Here's how people figure out other people. Here's how stereotypes work. And in the 90s, some researchers were like, that's just in America, dummies. And it turns out a lot of this stuff is really different in other places. But we go, well, this is what I see, obviously, as a universal experience. And because it is predominantly white people in America doing this research, because really it took off the biggest in America in the 1950s. Then we have all of these biases baked into what we do, but we, we give these things names like fundamental, ultimate, you know, like this is the thing that everybody does, not seeing how our science is actually contributing to the problems we're trying to dismantle with our science.
0: It is a big monkey's fist knot of things <laughs> to try and tease apart and, and try and resolve. It's, It's going to be an ongoing thing. Mm -hmm. There's never going to be a point that we reach and say, boom, racism is fixed. Boom. Mm -hmm. uh, Gender inequality is fixed. But we can keep trying to tackle the next biggest issue, right? Yeah.
2: I think because of that, it can feel overwhelming. Like, where do I even start? Mm -hmm. And one of the things I think is like, we underestimate how much power we have to change our socialization. Like if we change the people we're reading from, the ideas that are the most normative to us shift over time. If I change the media that I watch, the media that my kids are exposed to, it normalizes things that sort of a a dominant white cultural lens has socialized and it just introduces new stuff. And so one of the best things we can do is seek out new voices, seek out opportunities to engage in people who are different, like connect With perspectives that aren't our own, work with people who do other things. Like, so it can feel really huge, but it's actually a small change that can open up a whole lot of opportunity to learn about new things. Mm -hmm. If that just becomes our default,
1: that's that's a good point. And I would, I'll I'll tie this back to where we, the state that Austin and I are in. You're in Arkansas. We are in Utah, Um, and specifically here in Utah, where a lot of our Uh, many of our listeners are it's a pretty homogenous state. So, uh, by you, like you saying, uh, you know, get involved with people that are different or different than you. Uh, we immediately think, well, I'm just surrounded by white people. Like how can I possibly like get like interact with people that are different than me? But, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but different than you is more than race. Like you can, there's lots of different things, uh, that, uh, Lots of differences between you and people yeah. around you. It's not just the color of your skin, but but by interacting with people that have differences, um, it just it's like little building blocks to changing mm-hmm. your perspective of the world around you.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think that we are culturally talking a lot about gender, post the Me Too movement, and we're culturally talking a lot about race and ethnicity after the summer we just had with the Black Lives Matter protests around um, the around George Floyd, which which really got started in 2014 in Ferguson. Um, So I think that, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, there are so many interesting facets of identity that aren't visible to us unless someone trusts us to share, right? Mm -hmm. And that might be religion or sexual orientation or socioeconomic background, or, I mean, there are just so many facets of identity that we can communicate. We are open to engaging folks who are different in some kind of way, even thinking about the difference between people who live In larger, more populous spaces versus more rural spaces, there are some meaningful differences in how people navigate their communities, social systems, the way they take advantage of social resources. I think that for me, I like to approach interactions with people as an opportunity to learn. Like not to like, when do I get to talk? (laughs) But like, what can I learn from what you're saying? because that's where like my favorite insights have come. Now, I should say that's usually it makes me feel kind of bad to realize how much I have had a blind spot. So let me give you an example. On my college campus, uh, we have a handful of buildings that are absolutely not handicap accessible. They are not accessible buildings. And they were built so long ago that when they sort of updated building codes, they were like, well, you can keep those how they are. So about 10 years ago, I had a student who used a wheelchair to navigate our campus. And Uh, she had a class in the building that was not accessible and I was her advisor. So she came to me like the week before classes were starting and she's like, Hey, um, so I can't get to the classroom. Who should I talk to about getting this changed? And I was like, you shouldn't have to talk to anybody because I should have thought of that. And I should have brought it up with the professor or the registrar. Like, I'm really sorry. I did not even occur to me to be thinking about that. And I should. Because we've talked about how you navigate physical spaces on this campus before, and I should have anticipated that. And so, by being open to folks telling us what they need that isn't accommodated in the space, in whatever way, right? Like, be it, hey, I need a place uh, to pray because that's something I need to do five times a day, or hey, I need a day off for this holiday that you did not mention but is super meaningful to me in my religious practice, right? Those are all opportunities to learn. I think it's, we just have to convey that we're interested. So that hopefully folks trust them.
1: That's fantastic. I hope I hope everyone listening that can be our takeaway is is ta- try and learn something about who you interact with with, in, and in every interaction try and really consciously make an effort to walk away knowing something about them that you didn't know before. I think that that's a good a good uh, a good action. Uh, Mm -hmm. a good goal to have that can (laughs) maybe do something to solve some of the, uh, some of the horrible issues that we've, that that we're trying to deal with in our society.
2: I will say also my kids give me hope y'all like media for kids is so much better than I remember it being when I was a kid. So, uh, when my older daughter was turning five, she was going to be starting at a new preschool. And the preschool's whole thing is that they offer special services in-house for kids with developmental delays. So kids who don't have developmental delays could go there too. But the program is centered on these kids who have a variety of special needs. And so before Mellie was starting school there, I said, hey, I want to talk to you. So we've talked a lot about how kids like different things. You might like a book that your friend doesn't. They might like pizza with pepperoni and you don't. But I want to make sure you also know that kids can do different things. And that's great. Like, so You can get around where you want to go using your legs. Some kids need braces, some kids need a chair. And I just, you're going to see kids who can do a lot of different things, but like, that's great. We can learn from each other. (laughs) My five-year-old daughter, I'm thinking, I think I did that. Okay. She looks at me, she rolls her eyes and she goes, I know mom. I was like, okay, how (laughs) do you know that? That's sassier than I was expecting. And she starts rattling off all these characters on cartoons we watch right? And how like they work to make spaces accessible and how they're doing this in this way so that all the kids can play. And I was like, all right, the kids are all right. Like I see this push to introducing things that I have to work a little bit harder because they weren't such a big part of my socialization, but like, it makes me hopeful for the future knowing what's out there.
1: That's great. That is real. That's a really good, uh, that's a good story. A good feel good story. Cause I know uh, uh, many people right now have very little hope for the future. But uh, I think we we fail to recognize a lot of the uh, what, like what you mentioned, some of the good things that are that are happening, that people that are trying to make a change.
2: I will also say this summer was hard. It was hard not to feel down and hopeless. Yeah. Having tracked since Trayvon Martin was shot in 2012 and then what happened in Ferguson in 2014 after Michael Brown was killed. And just to watch how nothing has changed, you know, and so people are still in the streets. Arguing Black Lives Matter. And I felt like something shifted this summer. And here's what I'll say I probably this summer talked to 40 or 50 friends or former students who are wanting to set up work in their communities, getting get involved in work for racial justice, setting me up to talk to groups of people, people reaching out for me to talk to them on things like podcasts or in newsletters, and I see some momentum that I haven't seen before. And it can feel hopeless, but anytime folks are choosing to engage, you're part of making the world what it could be. That's a really cool thing. I mean, I feel like I said this like eight times after uh, I talked to y'all a couple weeks ago, but like there's good momentum to build on when people show mm-hmm. up for conversations about diversity and folks are willing to share. Like that's, yeah. that's where it starts.
1: And and you as a researcher who's dedicated your career to this, I'm sure that's really exciting, but even a step beyond that to some of the, uh, some of the people that are, that do come from marginalized groups. I hope, I hope more than anything that they do feel like that there is more support and love for them because yeah. that's, I, I can't imagine what their life and what their family's life has been like, yeah. um, but I hope more than anything this year that they ha- they do feel hopeful about the future more than anything.
2: I feel like, obviously, right? I am not a racial or ethnic minority as a white woman, um, a middle-aged white woman at that, <clears throat> but I feel like what I hear my students of color saying is they don't have the luxury of not being hopeful right? Because like, that's just the struggle. You try to make things better for the people that come after you. And I think that when white folks are relatively new to this work, it can feel really overwhelming. Like, oh my God, how do you change fundamental systems that I've never even noticed? And it's like, you're here now. So now be part of it. And now that you see what's there, you have to be hopeful it could get better and keep working. And, and so I, I don't know. I I feel this shift because when I work with younger folks, right, students or younger professionals or my own kids, I just think, yep, there's momentum here. There's something I can be hopeful about. This isn't, this isn't just, we, we have to have civil rights icons there to get us to do the work. It's like, this is becoming more and more people's work. And that feels really good and hopeful to me. I mean, it It's a tough balance teaching about stuff that's really, I mean, I teach about white supremacy, basically, in all my classes. Like, here's how it's messing you up and what we can try to do about it. But I leave most of those classes feeling hopeful because I see how when folks are willing to engage, how much they're capable of, how much energy and momentum and care and concern they can bring to interacting with other people. That's why I always say yes to things like this. Folks are like, hey, I'd like to talk to you about stuff you think is important. Well, hell yes, I would (laughs) do.
0: there's nothing better or more entertaining than listening to somebody talk about something that they're passionate about. Mm-hmm. Right. And especially something that they're passionate about and an expert on, <laughs> yeah. uh, cause then you learn something. Right. <laughs> I, I like the keyword that has come up a couple of times and things that both of you have said, and that's momentum. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope what's happened this summer and, and since does not become, One of those things that we look back and say, oh, wasn't that great when everybody cared about race?
2: I know, me too.
0: Remember that one time, and I hope it's something that we keep charging ahead with.
2: Yeah, I feel like the momentum has to come with structural support. And so one of my big worries, I mean, I'm... I I really feel like it is possible that the Biden administration is going to make a lot more progress on racial justice and on gender equity than the Trump administration was ever going to. But I think it's a real worry that uh, white folks who are new to thinking about racial justice are like, we nailed it this summer, so we're good. And I think that we have to then have structural supports that make it easier to do this work that change some of the systems that lead to the perpetuation of systemic inequality that that has to co-occur with the work of activists. You know what I mean? Like that, that there are a lot of ways that we can participate in making the world more how we want it to be. We just have to figure out what's our thing or how do we weave this into what our things are.
0: The thing is, I think something is so dangerous to movements like this is the like mission accomplished mentality being, uh, I don't know if I'm a millennial or Gen Z. I think I sit somewhere right in between, but being in that generation and growing up uh, in elementary school and junior high and learning about American history is you're taught, oh, racism ended in 1964. Yeah. Isn't it great that everything's fixed now?
2: <laughs> yeah. And it's like, hey, there were black and white pictures and we're all in color now. And it's right. Great.
0: That's right. And we ended sexism when women got the vote. Isn't that great? Yeah. Everything's fixed now. <laughs> yeah. That is so it. It's this rose-colored uh, image that is so insidious to the way we think about issues going forward. Yeah. We, we can't think that our work is ever done because there's always another step to take.
2: There's uh, an author who, whose work I love, Ibram X. Kendi. I, I feel like he's written a couple of big books. And uh, he, he writes a lot for a lot of different popular press outlets. But he uses this analogy, which has always made a lot of sense to me, which is like we're basically all, when it comes to race, racists in recovery. So we can be making amazing, great progress and we can still catch ourselves doing stuff that isn't who we want to be, but that it's like, there's no, I get to this point and I check the box. I did it. I'm done. But that doesn't really exist. Like we have to be evolving and growing and continuing to engage. And that if we're looking for an end point, we're not committing to just if, if nothing else, Self reflection about who we want to be and what we want to know. And that idea, that makes so much sense to me, right? Like when my kids make mistakes, I'm like, it's not a big deal. You're learning. Like, as long as you learn something, it's okay. You made a mistake and spilled milk all over the floor. How are you going to not spill the milk next time? It's no big deal. But I like, we get so freaked out by making mistakes. All of us forget about making mistakes. And I hurt people's feelings. And so, getting on board with just, we're all learning, we're all doing the best we can. And if we don't like how we did, we got to do better feels important because I think we look to stuff like Obama was elected. We nailed it. Racism is over. Or you know what I mean? like, Trump's out of the White House. We nailed it. Like we don't have any problems with this uh, anymore. So like I think that thing of we're never done. We're just pushing in the ways that we know how to push to make the world more what we want it to be in the ways that we show up for others and in the ways that we choose to learn that that makes sense to me because then I don't have to get so down on myself if I make mistakes about things that I care about.
0: And it, I think another another thing is to to never back people into a corner where they feel mm-hmm. like uh, they've lost if they change their mind or if they yeah. try to see things from your perspective.
2: Yeah,
0: um, I think a lot of people are just socialized that way, raised that way to think. Mm-hmm you're a coward. If you yeah. evolve in your perspectives, if you change your mind, if yeah. you start to see things from another point of view. Yeah. Or the,
1: uh, like a, a winner loser mentality, like, Oh, you thought this way before, but now you think how I think. So I win, you lose.
2: Yeah. Uh, when- that's, that's always seems so sad to me. Like, yeah. man, if every conversation is a battle, how exhausting. Yeah, You know, I, I've i never understood that we kind of are like, that politician has never changed their opinion on anything. Like, yikes, Uh-oh. but are they not paying any attention to the world? Like how I feel about stuff changes. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I didn't think going to the dentist was as big a deal when I was 18. And now I'm not missing a cleaning. Like, I it just <laughs> changed. That's, that's great. That means mm-hmm. we're paying attention yeah. to the world and, and our needs. Yeah, I'm totally with y'all. That whole, like, we got to just know what we know and never change. Just seems like such a lost opportunity. Like,
1: yep. Once again, once again, by doing that, you're inherently you're causing yourself to lack diversity, right? Uh, that that's the whole is that diversity brings collaboration, and and collaboration is how you uh, solve problems in the most effective and efficient manner. We should I include diversity loved, in all aspects of our life.
2: I've always loved this. Uh, I think it's my Angelou quote. That's like, "Hey, do the best you can until you know better." And then when you know better, do better. Like, I I don't love thinking about a lot of the decisions that that I made in high school. I'm like, oh, but I hope I'm a little bit about stuff I did in the past because it means I'm doing better now. So that's something.
0: I have really enjoyed this.
2: (laughs) Yeah, this has been great. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk to you.
0: I could keep asking you questions because I feel like there's... Like, do you just want to be a permanent host on here? Because that'd be I fun. Know. Like, we can just do this every week. I, I listen to several, po- I
1: listen to several podcasts uh, that have recurring guests. Like it's basically oh, like yeah. they're like half part of the show. I feel like we could have like a
0: 10 part series uh, with you. Seriously.
2: Well, I'm Cause, totally Because we haven't
0: even gotten into like the, the race politics of med school admissions yeah. or anything like that. That could be its own episode in and of itself. And may- maybe it could be down the road.
2: Well, listen, I would be happy to come back for a part two with y'all sometime if you want. I I think that what you're doing is awesome. I think talking about feeling like an intellectual imposter and how we navigate that is is like one of the first things we have to do to try to short circuit the defensiveness that gets in the way from us learning from other people. Yes. Like to me, figuring out how to get around people's initial defensiveness of not wanting to embarrass themselves, not wanting to have made a mistake, like that's kind of. Thinking about that in a way that invites us to learn seems like a really important precursor for learning about different experiences. And so, I'd be happy to come back. Yeah,
1: that's a that's a it's a little like a a little teaser trailer for
2: for the for the folks (laughs) for the
1: folks listening. A little teaser of what's ahead. Yeah, stay subscribed, please. (laughs) Uh,
0: Before we say goodbye, I I am also a big reader of fiction. Mm-hmm. I, I think people that read nonfiction outside of studies are, uh, sadists <laughs> unkind to themselves. Do you have a good book re- recommendation for, for our listeners? Something to, uh, well, well, maybe what are you reading now and what is a book you'd recommend?
2: Mm. My, my daughter's actually asking me, we feel like, what's your favorite book? I'm like, I don't even think I could tell you my favorite book this year. And she's like, how many books did you read? I'm like 150 and they're a lot longer than yours. And she was like, um, oh my God, that's such a good question. So I, what I read the most is fantasy. And it either has to be fantasy that isn't quite super thinky, doesn't have like six pages of characters at the front, you know, uh, or young adult fantasy. Like that's, I want to use my imagination and stuff. So I really, really like this author named Lainey Taylor. She wrote this series and the first book is called Daughter of Smoke and Bone. And it's awesome. Super, super good. Um, Oh, oh, the other book that I just read that I super loved, uh, there's this series by an author named Seanan McGuire. And it's a series of novellas. And the first one is called Every Heart a Doorway. So the premise of this series is it's like all these kids who've been sucked into other worlds to have adventures like the Narnia kids or Alice in Wonderland. And then at some point they get spit out and they do not know how to be a normal human anymore. And so there's this like boarding school for them to all become pals like, and like they have they norm- I like that. And it explores so much cool stuff about identity like oh they're so good. Gosh. And so like I, the second they announced the next one's coming out I requested it at the library so I'm the first person who gets it a year later. So I just read the 6th book in the series and I just reco- uh, recommended it to a student who was like I read all of them over break it's so good. So that was really great.
0: That that sounds Like such a fascinating premise for a (laughs) a book. I do like that. What's what's the book you've reread the most?
2: Oh, that's a great question. In the past year, the book I've reread the most, but it's because like my book club read it too, is this book by Madeline Myers named Cersei? And it's about like Circe, the goddess from Greek mythology. But it's like, she's the main character instead of her being in like two scenes of the Odyssey. Um, And so I read it and then I reread it and then my book club read it. So, And every time I was like, damn, this is good. (laughs) (laughs) It's also like super feminist in its retelling. So I'm always interested in like taking old, super patriarchal stories and giving them a new perspective, which actually feels very on brand for me. Right. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and I saw movie TV recommendations. Hey, if y'all haven't seen, I cannot strongly enough recommend uh, watching the TV show Ted Lasso on Apple TV. Ted
1: Lasso. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So uh, my husband and I have been in our house with our seven and three year old for 10 months, both trying to work full time and watch our children full time. And it is exhausting. And so what we have done at night when we slump over and we are exhausted is we have watched and rewatched Ted Lasso like four times. And then we've also watched and rewatched Shit's Creek a bunch of times because they're generally about people becoming nicer and they're funny. And I know it's going to happen. And they make me a little bit optimistic about just humanity. So those
1: are both I've watched. I've watched all of Shit's Creek uh, and uh, one episode of Ted Lasso. They're both hilarious. Yeah. So we actually,
2: We just got a new puppy, and we named her Moira Rose. Oh my gosh! Um, And so, what I've been having tons of fun doing it was it was mostly so I could do this. So I post pictures of her of like conversations that we're having, right? And so, like I say my thing, and then she says a Moira Rose quote. And oh, I'm just I'm having so much fun! I'm like, hey, could you stop having accidents? And then I'm like, puppy Moira Rose says, stop acting like a disgruntled pelican. Like I'm having so much fun doing this, but it only works because I've watched the show so many times.
0: Yep, I, I, I my my oh, wife. There's my, so much ammunition.
2: My there.
1: wife's name is Hannah, and I very often will just like yell from the other room, Hannah, Hannah, just like in in Moira's voice, because we just love <laughs> Moira so much
2: one of my best friends at work introduced me and I find that she and I sometimes when we're together, we'll start making like Alexis hands at each other. I'll be like, Oh my God.
0: Yes. Absolutely. Love it. It's such a good show. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if it was just the the stress of the pandemic or what, but like the the ending of Shit's Creek and the ending of uh, the Good Place got me misty. Yes, really got me. Oh, I
2: cried so hard at both. We're actually rewatching The Good Place. I was like, I think we could add this to our queue of people becoming nicer, and it's funny. Like that's that's our sweet spot right now with media. Like I. I like watching hard things and dark things and things that challenge me, but I'm like, Nope, I need to laugh and I need to feel happy yeah. about humanity. Yep. It's too that's hard. How, that's,
1: that's how I feel. That's how I feel. That's the show I gravitate towards as well.
2: <laughs> hey, but thanks uh, again for inviting me to do this. Course, and seriously,
1: thank you. Thank yes, you thank so you much. We're so, so grateful that you, uh, that you came on the show.
2: It's my pleasure. And seriously, don't hesitate to reach out again. I'd be happy okay. to talk to you all again.
1: We will probably take you up on that. <laughs>
0: Okay. That was fun. Well, that was Dr. Leslie Zorwick, everyone. Uh, we're again, so grateful to her for, for giving us her time and, uh, putting off eating dinner, uh, to talk to a couple of chucklehead medical students.
1: And she's also on sabbatical this year. And so anyone who is familiar with how how academics take their sabbatical year, it is, that is sacred time for them. So for her to spend some time, uh, chatting with us, I'm greatly,
0: uh, greatly honored. Is there anything else you wanted to throw in here at the end comma,
1: please? uh, After listening to the episode, like subscribe, leave a, leave a review, share it with your, your friends and family. Um, we're always trying to grow the brand. So please share, share, share.
0: Yep. You can find all our socials and everything, uh, i think attached to the show notes uh find us online at drimposter.com. that's imposters with an o at the end and uh yeah it's been good fun thanks for listening to dr imposter we're doing med school so can you